one thing in common and that is we're all human so since we share this uh, species commonality we might as well look at what it means to be human and a lot of uh, the contemplative or investigative side of Buddhist practice is understanding what it means to be human with a specific purpose, with a specific purpose of um, how can this understanding lead to a greater sense of peace, calm, tranquility, happiness, and ultimately a complete liberation of consciousness. So if we look at... uh, what a human being is. The Buddha would uh, usually talk about it in terms of the uh, five khandhas. He would separate the body and mind or the whole, the whole business of being human in a way of kind of analyzing different parts of it to kind of see, well, what is it exactly? What, you know, what is our experience made up of? Uh, so, one is the body, Second is Vedana, which we don't really have a good translation for, but often we call it feelings. Um, third is perceptions and memory. Fourth are intentional mental formations, uh, often which manifests as thoughts. And fifth is consciousness, sense consciousness. So uh, let's take a close look at these, because uh, the Buddha talks about these all the time in the suttas. They come up over and over and over again. So, um, body. We have a physical aspect to our being, to our existence. Um, when Buddha m- makes a list, uh, talking about the body and mind, often the body will come first. Uh, it's the most obvious uh, in many ways. It's you know, it's physical. It's um, you can touch it. Uh, it's made up of elements. Um, made up of you know, physical elements. It is, in a sense, it's more clearly 
um, investigated than the mind. The mind is is very very tricky, um, it's very fickle, uh, moves so quickly. The body at least seems to have uh, a certain illusion of continuity, although theoretically, you know, we know that it's constantly changing as well. It's constantly giving off millions of molecules and taking on new elements uh, moment by moment. But it has a little bit more of a, uh, a sense of continuity from day to day. But when we really look at, start looking at the body, then, for example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, where it gives us different ways of, of looking at it. Um, different ways of practicing with it. You know, one is is just being one. You know, fully aware that we we have a body. Uh, you know, just starting from that point. When we're sitting, we clearly know that we're sitting. You know, right here, right now. Uh, when we're doing walking meditation, or when we're walking to our tent, you know, just just clearly know that we have a body, we have a physical body. It sounds obvious, but it can be easy to forget sometimes. You know, it's like uh, body's going one way and the head's going another way. It's like, all right, we have a body too. Uh, It's not just something that is meant to be dragged around by our thoughts and intentions, but, you know, actually be with our body. As I've mentioned many times already, uh, establishing mindfulness on the body in every posture just gives such a continuity, uh, a groundedness to to life, to practice. Uh, So everything that we do throughout the whole day, the Buddha is always coming back to this sati sampajanya, you know, um, clearly comprehending what the body is doing in every posture. But then there's also many other ways that we can contemplate the body. We look at the body in terms of um, look at the body in terms of the fact that it's constantly changing and it's headed for what? It's like the the boat that sails out on a grand voyage into the middle of the ocean and sinks. <laughs> so, so. Um, yeah, welcome to life. We uh, we have you know we're uh, you know appear physically out of different elements. Uh, bodies constantly changing. Uh, aging is kind of cool for a while because we're getting bigger and stronger, and it's like oh oh look at that oh that's cool oh neat I'm becoming an adult. But then. Um, but then you can't stop it. That's the thing, you know. It's not you can't kind of pause it at age twenty-four. <laughs> okay, that's good enough. Good enough, guys. <laughs> okay, let's put the impermanence on hold. It's like um, it's got too much momentum by then. By age uh, forty-five, fifty, wondering, hey, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you realize, well, it's, it's all leading in one direction. Yeah. 
body going back to the elements. Earth goes back to earth, water goes back to water, and whether you know whether that's difficult to face or peaceful to face. You know, it was an important question. I mean, the, it doesn't change the reality. The reality is okay. We're going to die, and that is, uh, you know, that is an important aspect of having a body, knowing that it has a limited lifespan. Yeah, it has an expiration date, and it's not like we know what the exp expiration date is either. Uh, it'd be. I don't know if it'd be good or bad if the expiration date was printed on us, <laughs> a <little> barcode, <laughs> like, like you know, February twenty-third, two thousand twenty-two. That's it. You're gone. <clears throat> uh, it keeps life more interesting, not knowing how long you're gonna live. But rarely do people really look at that or want to look at it. You know, even if life is suffering, contemplation of death can be even more frightening because you don't know what happens after that. So what happens after you die? Well, talk about unknown. I mean, even if we have concepts of what is going to happen after death, if we're really honest, then most of us don't know for sure. So the unknown is always... Uh, you know, has an element of, well, it could be actually even worse than being alive. You don't know. It could be worse. And maybe, it, even, if, even if being alive is not great, um, dead could be, <laughs> I don't know. It could be better, it could be worse. Unknown is always like that. It's a bit inherently frightening. But... Awareness of our own mortality has the benefit of making us appreciate and not taking for granted the fact that we're alive now. As we mentioned, as my father mentioned, you know, live each day as if it's your last. But this idea that... Uh, You know, we really are going to die. So, how do we want to use the time we have in the most beneficial way possible? Right? We've got a limited amount of time. What's the best way uh, to use the the years or months or days that we have? And that's uh, a question that you know other people can't answer for us. But it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. You know, really look, and being on retreat, you know, is a, is a good time to both ask the question and maybe, maybe see if any answers arise. Another way to look at the body is in terms of its um, constitutional parts. The body isn't isn't just like one unit. The only reason it looks the way it does is because it's made up of this bit and that bit and this hard thing and this fluid thing and you know all kind of put together in a particular way and then oh okay that's what we call a human being. 
if you take those same elements, put them together in a different order, I don't know what you get, but you know, it'd be a mess. But in terms of identification with the body, you know, what is it? What is it that we identify with? Because uh, you know, creating a sense of self. If we if we really start to to get the get it, you know that it is the sense of self which which tends to get in the way of things and create unhappiness or suffering or obstacles where there need not be. Then we start to really look at it. Well, where is the sense of self born from? Where does it come from? It comes from identifying with things. I mean, first and foremost, we identify with the body, right? I mean, conventionally, you know, we, we think, but, you know, we, it's still difficult to get beyond the idea that, well, this is, this is my body, you know, and that's, that's your body, and that's your body, and, um, but, I mean, what is it that we identify with? You know, uh, when everything's put together in a particular way, then, then it's like, okay, this is me, this is you. But is it, uh, you know, the hair, the skin, the face, the bones, uh, the muscles, the height, the size, the, you know, what is it? Maybe all of these combined. So we have a practice, one of the main practices for developing wisdom in the forest tradition is body contemplation in this way, where we will uh, visually start to take apart the body and put it back together again, and take it apart and put it back together again. And you can do this in many different ways, but one way that that I like to do it is... um, visualize myself sitting meditation and then uh, I visualize all the hair on my body take it off my body and put it in a little pile in front of me and say okay you know what does my body look like without hair what does the hair look like in a little pile all right now for me, it'd be kind of a small pile. I'm not going to <laughs> but, but still, I still I, it's short, but I still identify with it. You know, little, that's me. Those little stubs. That was definitely me. But then you take it another level and say, okay, we'll, uh, we'll just go a little deeper. We'll take all the skin off. We'll take all the skin off of the body. And wrap it up into a little little pile and put that in front. Okay, now, uh, what does that little pile look like? Like a bunch of saran wrap or something. And then, what does the body look like without skin? Oh. Yeah, maybe it looked a little better with skin. <laughs> you know, just perception, but you know, 
I'd say probably looked a little better with skin on. Okay, well, this is what it looks like without skin. Ooh, all right. Well, you want to go deeper? That's just that's just the very surface. All right. Well, then bit by bit we start taking things apart. We start uh, you start taking some of the organs out. And bit by bit, and you take the you take the heart out. You take the liver out. Take the kidneys out and visualize it all in front. And you know, visualize the, the chest cavity gradually getting more empty. You, know, you can repeat, repeat to yourself like a mantra heart, liver, kidney, spleen. Heart, liver, kidney, spleen. This is what we call an organ recital. <laughs> 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 and then. Or good ones, you know, we have a lot of identification with our visual being, so we take, pluck the eyes out, you know, vi- no, just visually. I mean, <clears throat> in your imagination, you take your eyes out, place them in front of you, looking back at you. And then, uh, and then say, so, okay. Now, what does the body look like, say, without any organs. Now one of the good organs to take out, now if you have a problem with too much thinking in your meditation, just visualize taking your brain out, (laughs) placing it in front of you. So what does it look like? Kind of a squishy, all the squishy gray matter. And visualize your, your skull then, you know, without a brain. And so what's left? Yeah. Bones, sinews, flesh, fat. It's a popular one. Take all the fat off your body. Yeah. Okay, I can let go of attachment to that. Take all the fat off the body. Sometimes the pile is embarrassingly large. Say, okay, look at all that. What does our body look like without fat? And then we um, take all the all the, the muscles and sinews off. The whole pile of of flesh in front of us. You know, if, so we've got we've got flesh, we've got organs, we've got skin, we've got hair, we've got all of these things. And and uh, where is me in there? You know, which which is which one is me? I mean, still everything here, everything I identified with ten minutes ago, is all still here. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's just, um, well, is it still me or not me? And then you can visualize yourself just being a skeleton, sitting there, meditating. Which in itself can be a very peaceful meditation object, just visualizing yourself as a skeleton. But then you can visualize all the bones falling down into a pile. And then all the bones, you know, turning to dust with age. And then mixing with the earth and then blowing, blown away by the wind, washed rain, washed away by the rain. Until there's absolutely nothing left. All the organs, everything has dried up, returned to the elements. <coughs>
and then stay with that for a while and say, okay, well, out of all those elements there, which was me? What happens to the sense of self in that? And then do it in reverse order. Take some elements from the earth, water, and build up. Bone dust, pile of bones, a skeleton, organs. Start placing the organs back in the right order. Uh, Put the flesh back on. Actually, put the skin back on. Put the hair back on. And in that process, where do we start to identify with it being me and mine again? Interesting, just to watch where the sense of self comes in. Sense of self is like this little thing that tends to move around, you know. If we, if we really see one part of the body as, oh yeah, I can really see that that's not, that's not me, but it's like some other part over here is watching it and identifies with this as being me. But then if we investigate this as being anatta, not self, then it's like the sense of self moves over here. So yeah, that's not myself, but but there still is a sense of self maybe over here which is watching. So the mind does incline towards wisdom and understanding if it gets enough information. And often the reason it often the reason it chooses the root of delusion, which then <laughs> sometimes leads to our own suffering, it's not because it's intrinsically faulty, it's just that it doesn't have enough information. Like uh, if we only look at the surface and we don't give the body we don't give the mind enough information about what it means to have a human body. So we try to look. Uh, just be completely open, honest, uh, with a lot of integrity, and what it means to have a human body. All the component parts put together in a particular way, each of those parts in and of themselves, not really who I am, constantly changing, all subject to deterioration. So this uh, this thing which I call my body then, then is seen in a non-intellectual way as something which uh, is, is just a flux of elements. And if we do this enough, yeah, our perceptions are gradually uh, informed and informed with more and more wisdom. So our perceptions will gradually change. Not instantly, of course, even if we have real clear insight at one point, still, you know, we may have been identifying with the body so strongly for who knows how long that those perceptions are not going to change instantly. But we gradually work on it and then uh, uh, the perceptions uh, which fuel our intentions and activities in life then we'll gradually uh, have more and more wisdom in them. So there's a lot of potential for developing wisdom just with the body. The second of the five khandhas is called Vedana in Pali. And what Vedana is, is a, um, of a very basic 
movement towards pleasure or pain, pleasantness or unpleasantness, at each of the sense doors, including the mind. So for uh, example, if we, if we see something and the perception arises of a beautiful, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, perception of beauty arises, then that's called um, pleasant Vedana or Sukha Vedana. Sukha is the word for, for happiness or pleasure. So uh, if, if we see something and a perception of ugliness arises, then that's called Dukkha Vedana or um, Vedana that gives rise to a sense of unpleasantness, dukkha. So the Vedana is not inherent in the thing that we're seeing because, you know, I can look at that rug and have pleasant perception, sukha Vedana, you know, a, a pleasant reaction to it. Whereas someone else looks at the rug and they say, ugh, dukkha Vedana. That's a dukkha rug. For sure. <laughs> so no, it's a sukha rug. Now, this is how. This is how so many arguments. This is why it's so difficult for human beings to get along together. Because uh, you know, if they if they attribute some perception in their own mind with some external object, then we can argue about it forever. But but really, both. Neither are, are right, nor neither are wrong. It's just okay. I perceive it as beautiful. You perceive it as ugly. Leave it at that. And uh, the same is true of hearing. You know, pleasant sounds, uh, music that we like, um, sounds of the birds, you know, whatever sounds you like to hear, that's, you know, sukha, vedana, at the ear. And sounds that we don't like, um, whatever that might be, then you know, dukkha vedana. One good practice is with praise and criticism. You know, if someone praises us, then uh, it's just sound, right? But it gives rise to, okay, that's sukha. That's a pleasant reaction. If someone criticizes us, then, oh, it's just sound, but it gives rise to a sense of unpleasant reaction. Either way, it's just sound. But then our reaction to it are in many ways conditioned. But the reaction is so quick especially with many things, you know, it's like instantaneous. We see something, immediately we see it as beautiful or ugly, or, you know, to some degree, right? Uh, same is true of um, smells. Uh, same's definitely true of things that we eat, things that we taste, things which are considered delicious and things which are considered yucky. It's all, you know, positive, or pleasant or unpleasant Vedana. Uh, with the body, Things which are comfortable, uh, things which feel good, are pleasant, Vedana. Things which are uncomfortable, um, you know, just discomfort. It doesn't even have to be painful, but if it's just uncomfortable, right, then uh, this, if we're not mindful, then uh, just that much can keep pushing us always to run away from discomfort. And then the mind. You know, if something arises in our mind, a thought, memory, 
Uh, could be, you know, as soon as a memory arises, does it give rise to a sense of pleasure? Is it like a pleasant memory? Or is it uh, a difficult, unpleasant memory? You know, it can happen very soon, very, very quickly. So, Vedana is something we're experiencing all the time. Any time that uh, our senses are operating, Vedana is happening as well, whether aware of it or not. But it's something that, if mindfulness is quick enough, that we can really practice with it. You know, some people, some people may be may love being in a, a tent when it's raining and cold, and and you know puddles are forming in their <laughs> tents, and, and uh, down sleeping bags starting to get wet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I just love this. So much sukha vedana coming up. Other people, you know, maybe think, well. Maybe they don't like it. (laughs) When would this darn rain end, ever? Will it ever end? Uh, But it's uh, it's not intrinsic to the weather, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Um, Not intrinsic to our comfort level. It's, you know, it's... uh, to a large degree, our reactions are conditioned. What one person experiences will be different than the other. But this is also just on a very basic level. And if we practice just with Vedana, then really it doesn't matter that much if it's pleasant Vedana or unpleasant Vedana. So this is quite freeing in, in many ways because you know, just watch how much of life is, is about seeking pleasant Vedana and running away from unpleasant Vedana. Seeking things that are beautiful, uh, sounds that we like, uh, seeking comfort, good tastes, pleasant smells, seeking peaceful mental states, um, dwelling in happy memories. right? And how much of life is, is about you know, as soon as we feel a little bit of discomfort, we got to do something. You know, we have to do something. We, uh, something's wrong. You know, if we're experiencing discomfort, something's wrong. If we're too cold, you know, something's wrong. We've got to do something about it. Um, if, uh, if there's unpleasant sound, unpleasant sights, you know, how, can we, how can we fix that? How can we get away from it? So that's a bit like having a... Um, someone with a whip at your back. If we feel that we have to always move towards pleasant Vedana and away from unpleasant Vedana. There's not a whole lot of freedom there. So in actually taking Vedana as a a place to contemplate and develop wisdom, say whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, just look at it. Again, this is you know where Ajahn Chah was just so uh, unrelenting. Uh, he'd force people to look at unpleasant Vedana, and until they would just recognize it as Vedana, and were no longer running away from it. 
So, I mean, uh, sometimes they would take that practice to extreme. For example, you know, sitting meditation, you know, for long, long periods of time without moving, and then uh, you know, a lot of unpleasant vedana starts to arise. It starts with a little bit of discomfort, but you know, ends up being extremely painful. But if you can separate that which is watching, the awareness, and the body and the Vedana, then a lot of freedom starts to arise in the mind, because you see that they're different. They're different, and and just seeing Vedana as Vedana, even if it's something which is really unpleasant or painful, it's still just Vedana. And if mindfulness is strong enough, then it's not necessarily a problem. Where life can get really complicated is when we say, okay, there's unpleasant Vedana. I don't like that. If it's unpleasant and I don't like it, it's bad. And if it's bad, we got to get rid of it. <laughs> and that means I have to do something to get rid of it. Okay, let's, let's get rid of it. Or we experience some pleasant Vedana. Oh, I like that. Mm, I'd like to experience more of that. I'd like to experience that all the time. I, I want I want more pleasant Vedana. I like it. It's good. It's intrinsically good. How can I get more? <laughs> all right. And um, you know, it's just interesting to see how how many how complicated life can get just based on those simple dynamics. So that's Vedana, uh, very fertile ground for investigation. Um, also a very fertile ground for just being, making peace with whatever situation we're in. You know, if it's cold, okay, it's just Vedana. You know, okay, it's unpleasant. I feel that it's unpleasant Vedana, but it's still an object of mindfulness. Not a problem in and of itself. The next, the third of the five khandhas is called sanya. Sanya. Usually we translate it as perception. Also has a quality of memory to it because if we perceive something, it's usually bound up with memories. we, We experience something, we remember, and then we create a perception around it which then you know, comes up again when we see something similar. So if we, you know, if, we see, you know, if we see a person, we tend to have a perception of that person based on past memories. So perception then, again, very fertile ground for looking at our reality. How much, how much of our so-called external reality is just projected perceptions of our own mind. So perceptions are a lot more complicated, a lot more uh, involved than simple Vedana. Vedana is just like this, positive, negative, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. Perception is like, wow, this person's like this, and all this history, and uh, this situation's like this, and I like this, and all you know, it can get very complicated. And 
and then it can lead to arguments. You know? I perceive it like this, and you perceive it like that. I'm right and you're wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't perceive it like this. I wouldn't intentionally perceive something that's wrong. Therefore, you are wrong. <laughs> but even if people you know, just see things in terms of perception, then it's like, oh, God, well, you perceive it like that. I perceive it like that. Oh, that's interesting. Totally different. Oh, well, neither's right, neither's wrong. But uh, that's an important step. You know, so I perceive it like this. Therefore, that's ultimate reality. <laughs> I see it like this. Therefore, that's the way it is. Right? And therefore, anyone who sees it differently is wrong, stupid, got something, you know, faulty in their perception. So just in terms of living harmoniously with other people, uh, recognizing the degree to which we live in our own perceptions is very helpful. You know, I just say, uh, even if someone perceives life completely different than we, okay, that's fine, they live in their reality, I live in mine, they sometimes overlap, sometimes not. <clears throat> it's a lot easier to be um, patient and understanding. And to a large degree, how we perceive things will, will um, affect whether we're enjoying life or not. I mean, if you can convince yourself, sincerely convince yourself that I love it when it's cold, wet, and rainy all the time, you know, then you really love it here. <laughs> Isn't that delusional, though? <laughs> if it's not true, if you've just brainwashed yourself? Well, it's a good question. What, you know, what is delusional and what's not? I mean, some people really like this weather, sincerely. And, um, you know, that, that is based on other conditions in their past which make them like this, sincerely. And say, okay, well, that's, that has a certain reality to it. Uh, it's a perception that's based on causes and conditions. Other people uh, may be more, may have a, a sun-based happiness. I associate happiness with sunshine and reflecting, shimmering lake. Um, and uh, they may find it more difficult. But perceptions are very malleable too. You can't, you can't force yourself uh, to have a particular perception, but you, you can take an honest look at, at our own perceptions, say, well, it's merely perception based on cause and condition, and uh, it's not always going to be that way. Perceptions will change. We can change our own perception. And even if we do it consciously, 
that brainwashing, how about you can call it wisdom washing, <laughs> consciousness washing. I mean, there's a certain kind of purification that comes, you know, like washing, washing our consciousness until it becomes a bit more clear. That's still a bit more of a superficial level of happiness, because, you know, if we convince ourselves that, oh, everything's wonderful all around us, all the time, um, it's more conducive to being, uh, it's more conducive to not suffering, but it, it also can uh, not be very wise, it's not necessarily wise. People who really develop positive thinking, no matter what's happening, oh, it's so wonderful. Oh, right. it's so wonderful. You could do that if your husband beats you. It's pleasant when That's he beats right. me. Yeah. I can do that. I do that all the time when my husband beats me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm offering myself as an outlet for his defilement so that he can overcome. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's just fading now. Um, but that, you know, I, I see people like that. There's, there's a lot of pressure to be happy. It's like if you're unhappy, there's something wrong with you, often in the society. And, uh, and so there can be so much pressure to be happy that people are desperate to convince themselves that they're happy. So that even when, you know, things are like falling apart, um, you say, Oh yeah, you know, just uh, yeah, just a little teething pain. You know. <clears throat> not, not really, not really willing to actually admit that. Okay, well, not really willing to feel maybe the pain. Right. So that's 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 a way of dealing with perceptions. You know, perceptions are malleable, but. I think a much more profound way of, of dealing with it is, one, just to recognize perception as perception, whether we perceive something as positive, negative, complicated, you know, like, dislike, etc. It's like, okay, well, that's just our perception that arises and passes away. It's based on other memories, other experiences. How much do I identify with it? How much do we invest in that particular perception as being ours and being right? Huh? Because... If someone challenges that perception, do we get upset? Do we become uncomfortable? So those those are very good areas to look at. All the the non-attachment, attachment and non-attachment to our perceptions. The next area of investigation in the five khandhas is we call them sankara sankara khanda or this group is like a, a group of a wide variety of mental um, activity it's very difficult to come up with an English term for it you know we can loosely call it thinking but that, that's not really that's too limited we can call it um, like mental formations, um, conditions, conditioned, you know, mental conditioning, uh, 
intentional movement of the mind. It's difficult to find a term which is actually meaningful and covers it. But anything that arises from an intention in our mind, you know, is kind of classified under sankharas. And intention, in Pali, the Pali word is, is jaitana, and the English word intention often doesn't really cover it as well, because even if we're not aware of doing something, you know, in English you usually say, well, I didn't intend to do it, you know. I, uh, you know, I broke your favorite glass, but I didn't intend to do it. But there still was, um, it's, it's not like you completely get away scot-free and responsibility for doing things just because you don't have a clear conscious intention. It's just that we weren't mindful when the intention arose, not that we, in, you know, intended to drop the glass, but maybe we had in intentions to um, to move in a particular way. Uh, intention, intentions weren't clear um, that, you know, in, intentions were clouded with delusion so that we weren't very mindful and they were klutzy and, and knocked it over. So intention is like a very basic movement of mental energy even before thoughts form to kind of go in a particular direction. It's almost everything that uh, we do, think, say, is coming from intention. And because intention is the essence of karma, paying close attention to intention then is going to be a, a great point of liberation, where, where we have some maneuverability in changing our life in a positive direction. So a lot of our meditations are based on bringing up certain wholesome perceptions over and over and over again, certain wholesome intentions over and over and over again. And just something like, um, may I be happy, or may you be happy, um, may all beings be happy. Uh, the, just the intention of being mindful over and over again, you know, coming back, being aware. You know, there's intention behind that. It's a wholesome intention. It's good karma. Even just the intention to be mindful, to be aware of the breath, is good karma. So intention, in all of its forms, is constantly leading our life in, in certain directions. And it's usually a mix that is, to, to a large degree, out of control. You know, just based on habits, reactions, uh, something happens and then you know, our intentions kind of kick in and we respond in a particular way. But with mindfulness, to whatever degree we can muster mindfulness, then uh, it gives us that opportunity of, of choice when something arises, then being able to, to, to wash. Now, I'm not a slave to what intention arises. I can actually bring up an intention which I'm confident will be beneficial for the situation. And sometimes that really is going against the grain. You know, there can be so much momentum pulling us in a direction 
that it takes a strong, it takes a strong determination to say no. I'm going to respond with a positive, wise intention. So this area of the mind, all of the uh, more complicated thinking. Uh, concepts, ideas. Again, very good to look at how much do we invest our identity in the concepts, ideas that we have. You know, my idea. You know, it's my idea. It's my mental property. I own it. Or it's my opinion. Right? My opinion. You know, Really think through, okay, we now we've got a good opinion. How much identity do I, we invest in that? And if someone has a different opinion, what does that do? Someone challenges our opinion, challenges our ideas, so your ideas, ideas are no good. What does that do? So a very fertile ground for, for seeing where our sense of self arises. Then the fifth of the five khandhas is vijnana, or consciousness. In this sense, it's referring to consciousness at the sense doors. So, seeing consciousness, um, hearing consciousness, um, body consciousness, and consciousness in the mind. For seeing to happen, the mind has to pay attention to something. Right? I mean, if our eyes, if our eyes are working and there's light and there's something out there, seemingly something out there, still, if, if we're completely absorbed in thinking about something else, we don't. We literally don't see it. If we're uh, really concentrating on something and someone is trying to get our attention, calling out. We literally don't hear it. If um, if we really don't want to hear something, then we can literally not hear it. It's very good for when people are nagging you. <laughs> you just you just can concentrate on something else. You literally not hear it at all. So aren't you listening to me? Did you say something? <laughs> Didn't hear anything? So the, the way the mind seems to work is that very quickly it goes from one sense to the other. You know, from seeing to hearing to seeing to a thought uh, to a physical sensation to seeing. And that's the consciousness element, that's the, the element, you know, just basic awareness. You can also translate consciousness as, uh, translate vijnana as awareness. So just being aware, right? Awareness has to be present. Uh, if, if, we, if our ear is working and there's sound, but we're not aware, then we don't hear it. This is how, for example, um, if you're sitting meditation and the mind's unstable, it can be very 
uh, unpleasant. I get a pain in the ankles and uh, knees and back. But then when the mind is concentrated, all of the awareness or consciousness is kind of on the meditation object. Don't even feel the body. Even before deep concentration, the body can start to feel light. It's like you just don't feel the body anymore. Start to feel very uh, at ease and and light. It's also interesting to notice as soon as you can't feel the body, then it's usually pleasant Vedana. Mm -hmm. Right? (laughs) It's like, uh, it's one of the things which is is generally considered pleasant about uh, states of concentration. Yeah. No, no body awareness. You can't feel the body, You're just uh, absorbed in, in the mind, the meditation object. And so that allows a person to be able to sit for a long period of time. You could sit for hours and hours in the same posture that, say, if you had a distracted mind, you would have excruciating pain. But with a concentrated mind, nothing's changed in the body. No pain whatsoever. Just a wonderful feeling of being comfortable and at ease. Huh? Because awareness or, or consciousness is, is in a different place. And when the mind is fully absorbed, say in, in jhana, which is um, the perfection of samadhi, then all of the attention is, is at the mind, you know, the sense door of the mind. So... You can't hear anything. You, you know, there's no, there's no consciousness that's going to towards hearing. You can't feel anything in the body. You can't smell anything. Can't taste anything. Can't see anything. You just consciousness is just completely absorbed in one of the sense doors. So, uh, these are all good ways of investigating and looking at you know, what is it that I identify with as being me, as being mine? Uh, how is it that I, how do I relate to these things in a way which is going to be for benefit, you know, benefit that leads to our own happiness, but also benefit that leads to happiness of others, all those people around us. for that for your reflection this evening. Seem to be a few questions. What that means that's the retreat goes on. More <laughs> questions appear every day. Now, what, what does that mean? Is that more wisdom being stimulated? You realize we know that. Increase in confusion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, just trying to distract Ajahn to keep talking longer. <laughs> more questions. Okay. You ready? <laughs> Drugs yesterday. Okay, let's. <laughs> okay, we're, 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 we're,
right <laughs> down and dirty. Okay, drugs yesterday. How about your what was that? Ro what does that say? Rover. Rover, that's what I thought. Okay. Rover. You you make up a one. Drugs yesterday. How about your rover sex today? A cover. Oh, it's cover. Cover. That makes yeah. Oh. That must be a C. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a Zen koan. <laughs> okay, rational mind completely confounded. Just stay with that. Just stay with that. <laughs> Drugs yesterday. How about you cover sex today? All right, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, please discuss skillful and unskillful uses of sex and sexual energies uh, It affects as it affects our consciousness. Okay, now you're asking a, a monk. <laughs> you're asking this question of a monk. Now, why would you assume that I'm an expert in sex? I've been a celibate monk for 22 years. Um, let's see. <laughs> Was there like any specific posture you're curious about? <laughs> you know, some what was it specifically <laughs> you uh, wanted to hear about? Um, <clears throat> you picked a good one, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Very first one. Sex was similar to drugs for me. For a while, that was great, and then after a while, it was well. No, actually, it was still great, but <clears throat> but so maybe it wasn't like drugs. But um, there was a certain point for me that, uh, as I became more and more interested in the Dhamma things that I thought I could never give up. Just didn't, um, wasn't a big issue anymore. Like the, the first time I did uh, a long retreat, six-week six meditation retreat, straight out of graduating from college. Uh, you know, I didn't have much experience. I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never had gone that long living you know, by precepts. And I said, well, you know, if I can't do it, I can't do it. It's fine. But, but I surprised myself, and it wasn't that difficult. Uh, so that, so I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's actually possible, you know, to live without romance for a period of time. Not sure how much you want me to go into, but um, 
sex is neither good nor bad, like so many other things. It just you know, depends on our intention and our perception and, and our, um, what's the effect on our mind. Is it something which leads to or is, is uh, conducive to bringing out a sense of love and intimacy and closeness? Uh, is it something which you know, leads to harmony between people? Uh, does it have a positive effect in one's relationships and one's life? Right? If so, great. Um, go for it, but please wait until the retreat is finished. <laughs> I just have to be clear. <laughs> and then, uh, um, but you know, sex sex can be abused just like drugs. So, uh, if if sex is in one way harming someone else, you know, if it's um, uh, either directly or indirectly harming someone else. You know, indirectly it could be, you know, we kind of have a certain, have a relationship or certain agreement and then we have sex with someone else and then directly there's no problems, they would be fine, but indirectly it can create a huge amount of problems. Uh, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of misunderstandings. So, you know, those are all, all need to be taken into account. Um, sexual abuse, you know, is, is I don't know if it's a, how big a problem it is or where you draw the line and what, what is sexual abuse and, and what is not. But uh, being respectful of other people is just so important in whatever we do. So take that into the sexual realm. You know, just want to uh, be respectful and responsible. You know, there's a lot of things in life which are neither good nor bad, and if, if, if we do it in a wise way, <laughs> then it's fun. You know, life can be kind of fun and relaxing, and, and uh, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But, again, you know, it just, we just have to watch the effect that it has on our minds. Now, on... On some level of practice, uh, even kind of uh, loving, kind, responsible, respectful, sexual, romantic uh, behavior can is still going to be conducive to creating attachments. I mean, it's just you know it's just so conducive to creating attachments because there's such powerful passions involved. And when we get powerful passions involved, attachments very quickly, I mean, it's almost impossible for attachment not to, to come in. Whenever you've got attachment, then you, we set ourselves up for the potential of being disappointed, being rejected. Um, as we know, you know, as the more attached we are to something, often we try to, you know, if we try to hold on to something that we're attached to, we can kind of squeeze the life out of it. Um, we haven't even kill it because we love it so much. So there are in, there are intrinsic problems with any form of attachment, and and when uh, it's very difficult to 
to have sexual relations without having desire arising and without some attachments being formed. So, uh, at at some level, that's important to to look at, right? Now, the Buddha was very, I think, realistic and said, you know, if, if people can keep five precepts and have responsible romantic sexual behavior, that's pretty good. I mean, imagine everyone in the world lived by that standard. It'd be, it'd be wonderful. Uh, but the Buddha himself, you know, taking, taking his practice to deeper and deeper levels, very quickly adopted a celibate lifestyle. And once he was completely enlightened, he could have lived any way he wanted to, because he didn't have any attachment. He, his mind was completely freed. Um, he didn't have to. We didn't have to worry about even the possibility of any more suffering arising. I mean, the, all the roots of suffering were completely vanquished. So he could have lived any way he wanted to, and he still continued to live as a celibate monk. So, at his level of understanding, that was simply the most pleasant way to live. Right? Uh, he didn't. Whatever, whatever joy, happiness uh, the people would find in sex, the Buddha didn't need it because he had so much that he could generate from within. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> of course, don't take anything I say seriously. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a long time since I've had sex. <laughs> okay, Ajahn. What are some of the skillful ways to develop loving feelings for people? We have a theme going. <clears throat> skillful ways to develop loving feelings for people you have to spend a lot of time around who are very negative and distracted. Ah, different. Not just ways to feel patient or tolerant, like mosquitoes, <laughs> or Bruno. <laughs> Sorry, I hope Bruno never hears this. <laughs> we love you too, Bruno. <laughs> but truly love. Some examples are parents and spouses. Many thanks. Well, when when metta or compassion really is unbounded and universal, then we don't really distinguish between the people that we find pleasant and the people we find unpleasant. And we can sincerely, naturally have you know, a lot of love for everyone. But that's a very high standard. And uh, usually it's, uh, if we can just be really patient with the people who we find difficult, then that's an excellent start. Right? That's an excellent start. But then, you know, this practice of, of loving-kindness, it really goes deep. You know, if you really take this, this uh, metta-bhavana, or metta-cultivation, you know, more and more deep, then you know, we develop metta for ourselves, which is already major step to, to really feel that sincerely for ourselves. Uh, 
we visualize people that uh, we we respect and care about, and you know, metta for them. And people that are sort of we don't have strong feelings about, develop metta for them, and visualize people who maybe have harmed us, maybe are seen as an enemy, maybe even the thought of them is is, is painful. It brings up anger. Uh, to sincerely feel metta for them is a major step. So, it's not impossible, but you know, realistically, it is a, you know, a gradual process. So we start with the things which are easier. You know, just trying to develop a consistency of metta for for the nice people, for the average people, um, for ourselves, a big one. But then, you know, when when we start to get some real metta going, then just bring up the perception of a very difficult person, right? And and when when there is some uh, momentum of real sort of love, kindness, compassion uh, flowing, and then you bring up uh, perception of another person, you know, the difficult person. Stay with it for as long as you can, but as soon as um, anger, irritation, bad memories start to arise, then then it's okay. Just just set it down. Make sure you don't start to get caught up in, in negative stories, and then and then go back to developing um, meta on the, the the easier subjects. Now, when we're doing this practice, again, it's really about informing our perceptions, changing our perceptions. Because when we're, when we're doing metta bhavana, where are the people who we love? Where are the people who we hate? They're just in our perceptions. You know? uh, those people aren't here right now, necessarily. Uh, even if they are right in front of us, still, it's our perception which is going to um, be at the reality that we live in. So we, we can inform our perceptions with wisdom or with uh, wholesome qualities. You know, powerful, uh, painful memories and, and the perceptions that come with them, they're changeable, they're not permanent. Um, the, the person who we perceive in those memories, that's not really what we're dealing with in metta practice. We're dealing with our own perceptions. And that's within our realm of, of possibility. I mean, that's, that's something we can actually change. And we, we can't go around changing other people. You know, even if we had... The, we thought we had the wisdom to change everyone in just the right way. But we can't do that. But we can change our own perceptions of how we perceive people. And, uh, and work at it in a way which then is conducive to peace, happiness, clarity. You know? Not conducive to, you know, I perceive, as soon as a memory comes up of this person, anger, fear, resentment arises. Like well, that's that's just not going to be beneficial for anybody. So, if we can 
if we can work with that perception to the point where memory of that person comes up, at least we can respect them as a human being. At least we can forgive them on the level of, okay, well, they're a deluded being too. They, they were out of control. Um, you know, I have greed, hatred, and delusion. They had greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, maybe they, maybe they had more, or maybe you know, whatever. But, but at least just on the level of being a basic human being, that's unenlightened. You know, we can, we can. It's easier to develop a sense of respect and and letting go. And and when we see that, well. You know, we've got all of these <laughs> defilements in our own heart, and and uh, people who have caused us pain, well, they have those same defilements in their own heart, and we're really not that different. And so in that way, it can be a bit easier for the uh, heart to open up, just to see that, you know, we're, we may be different by degrees or in certain situations, but fundamentally... You know, we, we share the same qualities, even with the people who are very, very difficult. <clears throat> Dear Rajan, question about the dynamic of karma. A child... A child that is born gets his or her personality trait from his or her parents. Also, if the parents are wealthy, the child becomes wealthy too. How does karma come to the picture here? Thanks. Well, a, a child who's raised by parents will, would get a number of its cultural conditioning from the parents. But I don't think, not all, I mean, brothers and sisters don't grow up being just like each other, often surprisingly different from each other. So there's a lot of other factors too. I think that, you know, that's one of the things that makes sense about rebirth is that we're, we're coming into this life with a lot of old karma that we've made already. And, you know, it's a constant process of change. And then we come into this life and we have this situation, these parents, um, this particular social standing, etc., this culture, then that, uh, those are all powerful new influences, but doesn't completely erase everything else that's coming in. So you end up with this constant soup or this mix that's always changing. Dear Ajahn, can you please tell us about the drawbacks of praise and blame, fame and ill repute, etc.? There's no real drawbacks of praise or blame, fame or ill repute. But if we attach to praise and attach to blame and attach to fame and attach to ill repute, attach to happiness and attach to unhappiness, then um, 
we set ourselves up for a lot of suffering. If we attach to praise, then when we get criticized, then it's painful to that degree. Actually. If we attach to fame, build an identity around being famous, then um, when we lose that fame, then that can be painful. Maybe that's not an issue for a lot of us ordinary people, but you know, look at people who were once very famous, like Hollywood stars in a particular time, super famous, lots of praise and fame, and then ten years later, no one, no one knows them. They're absolutely they're yesterday's news, and that can be really painful if there's a lot invested in being famous. Ajahn, I notice that healthy meditation is much easier when I include everything. The sensations of the feet. A walking meditation. A walking meditation. Okay. Not waking meditation. <laughs> Maybe I spelled it wrong. Okay, yeah, walking meditation. I just perceived it differently. <laughs> I notice that walking meditation is much easier when I include everything the sensations of the feet, the sands, the si- sounds, <laughs> or the sands, it could be down by the lake, sands, the sounds, or the sounds of the sands, the sights, and the, and the mint bottles. Oh, the mind settles. <laughs> my eyesight is... My eyesight's really going, I think. And, uh, and my mint bottles. <laughs> and the wholeness of walking. Oh, there it is. Are you? Are those readers, Paul? No, I, I do have glasses if I need them. Um, I notice that uh, the balance is difficult to maintain for very long. It is uh, simple just to stick with the sensations or include which is always changing. Sorry. So, yeah, that's fine. You know, with walking meditation, um, you know, if you can get to the point where you can just sustain awareness on the whole, the wholeness of walking, movement of the body, the interaction with the environment, the sights, the sounds, the mint bottles, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Then then that's great. Um, You just have to watch out for the mind uh, starting to wander. Anytime that there's, there's not like a consistent meditation object, then it takes even more mindfulness. So that's why we, you know, we have the breath. But if the breath becomes very, very subtle and almost disappears, you can just stay in objectless awareness. 
and that's that's great but it, uh, you really have to be very careful because then very very quickly little bits of thoughts can come in and the whole thing can deteriorate same thing with walking meditation pay attention to the sensations of the feet coming in contact with the ground um, or pay attention to the breath you know you've got something that you're consistently going to as an anchor and if you build up enough momentum of uh, awareness then it may feel natural at some point to just kind of let it just just be with walking right just be with the whole experience uh, peaceful silent maybe you know if you if you get an uh, experience of internal silence and you're just walking back and forth in nature it's just a beautiful thing simple beautiful right there uh, but again just be aware that when you're seeing things and hearing things even more than when you're sitting meditation uh, it's like uh, it's going to very quickly trigger trains of thought thinking reactions trains of thought you know, very quickly can suddenly suddenly come in and take us away so as long as you can keep it going great uh, just be aware that um, very quickly the whole thing can kind of dissipate mental energy dissipate get distracted and so as soon as it starts to be a bit less focused then go back to pay attention to the feet or the breath and continue on so that continuity of mindfulness doesn't get broken as much as possible chanting metta versus meditating on metta as the object it seems that chanting it aloud is more of a communal devotional activity while doing metta silently is a deeper reflection. Can you commentate on this? Yes. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the chants that we do are, um, you know, we do chanting because it's a uh, devotional exercise, can bring up energy, uh, it um, can bring certain teachings into our consciousness. You know, if we're we're chanting things regularly on a daily basis um, tends to go into our consciousness more um, when we need it or you know just at the right time often a line from the chanting will come up and you know just be you know the right teaching at the right time so chanting then and memorizing things uh, allowing it to go into consciousness has many benefits but uh, it's it's not really meant as a you know um, systematic um, meditation on a particular subject it can be I mean it takes concentration to do chanting um, you can reflect why you chant but chanting the metta sutta is more like um, you know reminding ourselves you know these are things that we aspire to whereas actually sitting down and and in a more focused, systematic way, um, bringing up loving-kindness or coming in contact with the things which are obstacles to loving-kindness, that is um, kind of, uh, allowing the, the practice to go a bit deeper. I think it's probably time to stop. <laughs> we'll just throw the rest of these questions in there. <laughs> 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 we can save these for tomorrow.
unless I die first. <laughs> <laughs> then Paul can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can have the questions on drugs and sex. Okay, we'll save the rest of the questions for tomorrow. And uh, let's go. It's almost time to do the chant the Metta Sutta.